This podcast episode is supported through contributions from the McFadden family and the Jack Norris estate. Hi, fellow music lovers, musicians, songwriters, and or fellow spiritual seekers. Welcome to Songs, Spirituality, and Stuff, a podcast that explores the relationship between music and faith through interviews, performances, and sometimes my own musings. I'm your host, Sean Roney. When this podcast series launched, I said Song Spirituality and Stuff would be, in part, a showcase for the music collective Sacred and Secular. But I also said I wanted to feature musicians outside of Sacred and Secular. This episode is a way of meeting that goal, thanks to this month's guest. The guest for this episode is Craig Owens, a jazz musician and composer based in Wichita, Kansas, where he was a faculty member at the Wichita State University School of Music for 28 years before retiring. I learned about Mr. Evans through my desire to feature musicians of faith outside my own faith, Christianity, specifically Episcopal Christianity. Some time back, I learned about the Baha'i faith. Less than 200 years old, it was founded during the 19th century in Persia, generally known today as Iran. Its most famous observer, perhaps, is Rain Wilson, whom you might know from his portrayal of the character Dwight Schrute on the American version of the TV show The Office. Wilson discusses the tenets of the Baha'i faith in a video produced by Baha'iTeachings.org, which I found on YouTube. I've posted a link to the video in the description of this episode. In June 2020, I visited the website Baha'is of the United States and posted an email stating I was seeking Baha'i musicians to feature on this podcast. A few days after sending my email, Elizabeth Owens, Craig Owens' wife, contacted me. That, in turn, led to my July 24th phone interview with him. Topics we covered during our chat included his project, The Seven Martyrs of Tehran. Recorded with his group, Craig Owens and the Bodo Ensemble, and released in 2009, the nine-track recording was inspired by seven Baha'is who were put to death in 1850. Other topics included his contribution to a pending mixtape being produced by the Philadelphia Jazz Project that pays tribute to the music of Sun Ra. Talk about your, your musical background. You play the guitar, correct? Right. Uh, how, how did you get started playing it, and what led you into playing jazz? Uh, I came to the music before I came to the instrument. So there's some people that seem like they were just natural-born guitar players, and so that was the thing. And for me, that was not the case. I... My dad had good taste in music, so uh, when I was in middle school, my dad was listening to Errol Garner, Dave Brubeck. We, uh, I, I mean, I, I, I really honor that, and I'm proud of it, because it was a working-class background. You know, my, my dad you know, was not a professional person in the sense of being a lawyer or a doctor. I had friends who were like, whose parents were like that, and of course they had music, you know, they, uh, they had the stuff of the era. But I thought my dad had good taste. He liked Jobim, you know, he loved Wes Montgomery. But at that time, and at that time, I had friends who were playing, and they were playing in the stage band at school. Uh, but I didn't play an instrument. In fact, when I was in, in high school, I was, uh, in fact, I was an English major in college. And the first encouragement that I got in terms of a creative 
creative voice was through an English teacher in my junior year in high school. And that friends of mine said, well, man, you, your music is different. You write music because you were really a musician. You were like an English major, man. You come from a different background. So, uh, but I loved it, man. And by the time I was in high school, I, you know, I know about Miles Davis and Charlie Parker. Uh, Ornette Coleman was on the scene then, but that was ahead of me. You know, I, growing up in a small Kansas town, man, I, you know, whatever I read about it in Downbeat Magazine. Uh, so anyway, that was sort of my, and my friends would play, and I would play drums with them on a shoebox in the bedroom, you know, that, and I could scat solos like that. But I was more into writing poetry, man. I thought I was going to be, you know, a writer or a journalist or something like that. And then in uh, my first year of college, I actually started playing guitar because my friends played, and I loved all that stuff. Uh, I, and as I said, I didn't have a music background, but I wanted to be part of it. So they needed a chordal instrument for their group. They had saxophone, bass, and drums. So, uh, and a lot of times they could play the chords on piano that they wanted on guitar, but they didn't really know how to play guitar either. So they would draw the stuff out on guitar and I went out and played gigs immediately, but I didn't know how to do anything other than play the chords for these jazz tunes. I mean, which, of course, man, it was Misty style of our style. I did with songs that jazz people play, you know, but when I started out, that's what I did, and I didn't have a clue. I didn't, I didn't know the notes above the fifth fret on the instrument, and I was playing gigs. It, it sounds like you were self-taught, were, were you? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there wasn't, even by the time I got to, I taught at Wichita State, uh, it wasn't quite so, it wasn't common, you know, and when growing up in this small town in Kansas, there was a guy from Wichita, which at that time seemed like a big city, came over and taught in a music store, I got a couple lessons from him, but actually, man, there was a guy over here in Wichita who was, he went to, he made records, I mean, he went to California and played in the West Coast jazz scene and I took some lessons from him and then he didn't want to teach me anymore because it was a different time man and the stuff that you had learned on your own to pass that on to somebody else meant that they were going to steal your gigs Uh, they're younger they could work for less money and actually this was still going on man I had my students I would teach them and then they would go out and work for less money than as an adult with a family that I was going to work for. So, you know, that went on. You know, but during that era, uh, yeah, man, I, I, I was self-taught. I'd just read this stuff out of books and, uh, you know, try to go, try to get better. I think it was probably a slower process, but nothing wrong with that. Was was there a point when you, you took formal lessons and, and, and studied under somebody or... That's funny, man. Now that I look back upon it, no, I never did that. I mean, I I knew people who were good. I mean, Jerry Hahn was from here. He's, he's I, I don't know where he lives now. Last time I saw him, he was living here. Man, monster guitar player. And he had a bunch of books, and I read them. I mean, all of us read them. I mean, they were in national magazines. But no, I never had any lessons as such. Well... There was a rock and roll guy over in Hutchinson where I grew up, and he taught me 
bar chords and stuff like that at the very beginning. But when it came to playing jazz, there wasn't anybody over over there. And when I came over here, the, the guy, I mean, who was indeed the guy, man, he was really good. He didn't seem interested in that. It's like, oh, I don't need anybody else coming on the scene playing my stuff. You know, so no, I never did have any lessons. Were there any particular guitarists that, that kind of influenced your style? Man, I would say like everybody before Pat Metheny. So people like Django Reinhardt and, and, and guys like that? or No, man, really just the people. I mean, when I was coming at Barney Castle was... Like, very influential, man. He made a lot of records. He made, uh, <laughs> I still showed the students this record he made with Julie Linden called Julie Is Her Name with great guitar accompaniment. It's just, it's just guitar and bass and a lot of wonderful accompanying ideas. So I did that, you know, and, uh, no, I mean, Wes Montgomery, of course. That's a big one. Jim Hall. Those are the two big ones before the, what we might call the Boston Berkeley generation of John Schofield, Pat Metheny, uh, even Bill Frisell, that's another generation, you know. But before, I don't think I was influenced really by Pat or the people after him, but of those who came before, I like them, man. Jimmy Rainey, I always liked, you know. And as I said, the two big ones, of course, were Wes McGurman and Jim Hall. Everybody was learning from them, and it was two different approaches, so that was, like, really helpful. How did you come to the Baha'i faith? Well, um, I was living in Colorado. Actually, uh, I was a conscientious objector to the Vietnam War. So I worked in a hospital during this, you know, 1970, 69, 70. I worked in a hospital in Colorado Springs to fulfill my military requirements. And there were some guys out there that were musicians. Uh, a friend of mine had moved out there. He played with them. And uh, I was there for people to play with. And they were really good. And so we got together. And, man, they were nuts about the high faith, which I was not interested at all. I just wanted to play, you know. So I, this wasn't any spiritual quest on my part, man. I was like, I want to be a musician, man. I want to get good. You know, and these guys were indeed good. It was a bass player and a drummer. So we got together and played, and I'd be over at their house, and they're planning behind events, and they have behind posters on the dining room table. And they're good people, man. They're very good people. They're smart, you know. And so I thought, well, I better read some of this. So I remember, I think the first thing I read was Gleanings from the writings of Baha'u'llah. And so I read in there, all the religions are one. Oh, interesting. I lived in a Muslim country. I was in the Peace Corps in 1969. So I'd, I'd lived with Muslims, man, and uh, no one could tell me that that was something man-made or a political or sociological movement, man. That was for real. So, and I read Alan Watts. All of us had that background at that point. So to say all the religions, religions have the same basic teachings, man, I, I, I believe that anyway. And so I, not to go into it any more deeply, but I, I read the Baha'i stuff and I realized, well, man, I'm really one of them. You know, I don't want to join a religion. I'm not in, into that organized religion. But, man, by definition, I'm a Baha'i and I always had been. 
So as time went by, then I realized, well, man, if that's if that's what you are, then you should probably sign up and you should join them, man, and like take part. So I did, and then not to <laughs> not to throw this out, but I was at a Baha'i meeting and. Uh, they said, well, this person is coming to, this is in Colorado Springs, she's coming to Colorado College, she's a Baha'i, and she needs transportation to one of the meetings. Will you pick her up? I said, sure, I'll do it. Well, as you can guess, that was my future wife, and, what, well, that was 70, and we've been together ever since. So I met my wife in the Baha'i faith, and done a bunch of stuff, man, you know. Uh, I know she's extremely active. I think you would say I am still quite active in it myself. I certainly still breathe it, that's for sure. What's the community, the Baha'i community like around Wichita, where where you all live? Is is it a growing community? Is it is it small or? I would say both of those things, and but it's evolving. Man, it, it's a dynamic situation. Uh, so the generations come and go. I mean, my generation, I'm in my 70s. So my generation is sort of moving out. And then the young people that we, <laughs> we sort of raised them, man, uh, they grew up around here or and then went off and came back. And so now they make up the body of the people who do the administrative work and and schedule the meetings and whatever. So there is, uh, you know, that has changed. And there's there's a considerable effort worldwide for the Baha'is to work in communities and build communities. So that's going on here in Wichita. Some wonderful stuff has happened. I mean, my wife and I have been part of it. And it's been a lot, in particular, working with the Hispanic community. It's been wonderful, man. It's been amazing. Uh, but it's a relatively small community compared to L.A., uh, other parts of South Carolina. There are a lot of Baha'is there. So, uh, and globally, yeah, certainly our community here would be quite small. On on the other hand, I saw something on CBS News, I think it was, that mentioned that the Baha'i faith is the fastest growing religion I think in the world. Why why do you think it's growing at a time especially in the West when you're seeing Christianity and some other faith traditions start to be observed by fewer people? Uh it's my feeling that and the Baha'is all over the world believe this, but the Baha'i faith is the application of the eternal spirit of religion. It's the same religion in, that's in Christianity and Islam and all the others, the major ones. However, it's as applied to this era. And the fundamental teaching of Baha'i faith is that we have to establish and understand the oneness of the human race. And, of course, at this moment, man, a big issue. It's not new to the Baha'is, but race is a big issue, you know? And the Baha'is have all, men Baha'is have always been a racially integrated community. The Baha'is have always worked on that. They've sort of been known for it. A lot of interracial marriage, like down through the years. And we we think the world has always needed that, but never more so than now, you know. And 
I don't think we're the only ones. You know, so when we talk to people and we say, hey, man, uh, race is an illusion. We are one human family created by one unknowable force. You know, and all of us are part of that, and we are responsible for one another. Your actions are not isolated, you know. Well, that's not hard for people. Okay, I'll say for some people, but apparently many. Uh, it's not hard for them to understand that that's not a radical concept, you know. So that would be one thought on it. Your your wife, Elizabeth, said that, that you also compose. Just when did you start writing music, and in what ways has your faith in, influenced your work? Well, uh, I mean, I... I see the like the, the composition of music in my own life as an extension of really my love for creativity, you know. And when I started writing poetry in high school, and this someone said, "Oh, that's nice," blah blah blah, you know, okay, that's fine. And then I did creative writing in college. So then, if I was going to do music, then to compose music, see, for me that was a natural thing, you know, and. But, it, man, a big influence for me was uh, in 89, I went up to Banff in, Cal in Canada, near Calgary, and I met Woohoo Richard Abrams. I don't know if you're, are you familiar with that name? No, no. It was, that was something else, man. I couldn't believe it. You know, Woohoo uh, passed last year, and he was the driving force behind the AACM in Chicago in the 50s and 60s. And man, he was a wonderful person, a great, great teacher, and tremendously like charismatic and encouraging. I mean, he was just everything that you would look for as far as teaching is concerned. And man, he was very helpful. You know, giving me stuff to try and encouraging and say, uh, saying, man, we'll do this. You know, so then after that, I came back and I just, I had done some things before that, but boy, that really, you know, that really turned me loose, you know. So it was out of that, the Seven Martyrs, which is the first CD that we made, that was actually a faculty recital. And the those pieces, really, they came out of my lessons with Mohal. And I, man, I still use those principles. It's just so amazing, you know, what, how somebody could be such a great teacher that they could have that effect. Um, yeah, so that was it. And, and I love composing, man. So I, I do it all the time. I have tons. I, I'm here in the garage now. And, man, I have boxes in here of, of tunes and compositions. Because you mentioned the Seven Martyrs of Tehran, um, you mentioned that it had started out as, as a faculty recital, you said? It was literally a faculty recital. Recorded two-track in, uh, in the performance uh, auditorium at Wichita State. Did you read any accounts of the, of, of the executions in, in 1850 beforehand, um, be before that performance, or, or what did you use to to kind of inspire you and, and get you in the frame of mind to, to be able to play the music that you played? I mean, of course I had. There's a book called Dawnbreakers. Maybe you heard of that. Uh, and it's an account of that era. 
you know, uh, mostly centering, uh, leading up to the martyrdom of the Bob, the forerunner of Baha'u'llah. And, uh, oh my gosh, it's incredible. And to think that was real, that, that really happened, you know, they took people to the public square of Tehran, and these are like influential people, these are religious leaders. It'd be, it'd be like you take the city council out and then tell them, well, if you don't recant your religion, we're going to kill you. And, of course, they didn't do it, so they beheaded them in the town square. Uh, but that's a book that, uh, I don't know, man, I don't want to say all the Baha'is, because there are a lot of Baha'is, but it, it's common. I mean, I, I've read that book, I don't know when I read it, a long time ago. And, indeed... Prior to the uh, composition of those pieces, I went through and I tried. I tried to, in in some cases at least, have the composition reflect what I might have felt or imagined about those individuals. Because one of them was a dervish, so that piece is a, perhaps a little more eastern sounding than you know, than some of the others. But yeah, I definitely, I read that book. One of the other things that Elizabeth had mentioned in the email correspondence between us was that you're also working on a, a, a Sun Ra uh, tribute, is that right? Yeah, they, uh, they contacted me. This has been going on for quite a while now. Uh, and I don't know very much about their end of it, other than I've gone to their website and when they... They told me that, uh, they asked me if I wanted to submit a piece. I said, sure, I would. And to tell you too, Sean, man, I forgot about it. And there's a friend of mine in New York who was sort of the go-between, and he said, man, if you don't get on this, then these people are, are, are like not going to ask me to do anything like this again. It, so don't let me down. Well, then we had to hurry around, get this piece going, and... I thought, oh, well, what's going to happen now? Uh, because, man, we put it together in a weekend, you know. So I sent it off. Well, they loved it, man. The Philadelphia people loved it, and my friend loved it. Well, man, it was two years. I didn't hear anything. I, so I, I sort of forgot about it again. And then they sent me a note and saying, saying, we're doing it. We're releasing this tape, and your piece is on it. So will you send us bio stuff? Fine. So then, then they send me a link to what must be a mock-up of something that would go on their website with the other, uh, I'll say artists, other musicians and composers whose pieces were featured in the tape. Some of them are like pretty serious, man. There's a guy named Douglas Ewart from AACM in Chicago who is like certainly far better known in the international world than I music world than I am but anyway uh, so they said what do you think I told them yeah it looks nice you know but then I, and then I went to their website later thinking oh man maybe they've done something and I, I, haven't, I still have heard nothing more about it so I was you know honored to be part of it and, and I was pleased that they chose my composition, you know, but after that, uh, uh, man, I couldn't tell you anything. And what organization is it or, or label that's, that's putting the, the tribute project together? 
think it's called the Philadelphia Jazz Project. They centralized the jazz activity in Philly. How much of, of Sun Ra's work had you heard before you got into this project? And, and did you focus on him much when, when you were a, a, a jazz music teacher? <laughs> Both of us aware, are aware that there's a ton of music that would fit into the category of jazz. If you say you love jazz, then you could pick one. I'm just getting around to studying Eric Dolphy, and I've known Eric Do about Eric Dolphy my whole life. I mean, 30 years, you know, but I've never, I've transcribed a lot of Charlie Parker and a lot of John Coltrane, Sonny Rollins, Wes Montgomery, Jim Hall, wrote their stuff out, figured it out, and I never did that with Eric. And it's been fantastic, man. I always wanted to, and so my point is, I never, I never did that with Sun Ra. I had Sun Ra records. I've had them for years, you know, and I listened to him. And we used to talk about him in school, and I would show one of those movies. I can't remember what, I can't remember which one it was, actually. So, well, I, I have the type of, of passing association with Sun Ra that most musicians, in fact, most music lovers have, they know who Sun Ra is, and so do I, and I have his records. And, but to say I went into it in depth, I probably went more into depth on the philosophical side than I did the musical side, even though I can't say that that was anything of great magnitude. In, in the few moments that we have left, are there any other projects that you're working on that, that you'd like to promote and encourage people to find? I can't really say so. I mean, there's a there's a lot of good stuff. I say that, but people are still discovering Bodo Ensemble. Man, we get likes on Facebook like every day, or new views, or whatever. So the and now things being what they are with the COVID, we're not operating, so we're not recording, we're not rehearsing. And actually, what I've done, man, I, I'm i playing flute and saxophone. So I practice those every day. And when we do Bodo again, I want to do, in particular, I want to play a lot of flute. But when that's going to be, I don't know any more than anybody else knows, you know, what we're going to be doing. But there's some great, if, they, if people could go to the, and you might like it, too. You could go, I don't know if you've seen it, but there was a concert we did, it would be a year ago, December, at the Fish House here in Wichita with Andrew Bishop. But uh, that was a great, great concert. You know, I thought, and Andrew, Andrew is on the final set playing up a storm, man. It is, and there's a great bass player here named Dale Black. And the two of them, oh my gosh, it's, I don't know, man, but it's pretty good, pretty good. Otherwise, we don't have any new CDs, or, you know, man, I have all this stuff written out. I, I just, uh, I've written all these exercises and etudes on flute, and I just would like to be able to play them, so I practice the flute every day, you know. I've got a good teacher, so... Yeah, that'd be, uh, but also then it would be interesting because there is a lot of 
now people are sort of rediscovering the Bodo music that we did through the years, and some of it has been posted on Facebook. And I have to admit, they tend to like it, you know? Uh, so, yeah, they can go back, and uh, that would be what I would say, man, investigate the body of, of our output. And if they found anything that they liked, good for them. Mr. Owens, I thank you. <laughs> so we are. Yeah, you're very welcome. Because of licensing concerns, Craig Owens' music is not featured in this episode. However, I've posted links to his work in the description of this episode. They include the video of his 2018 concert at the Fish House that he mentioned near the end of our interview. Two other items of note. First, I plan to follow up with the Philadelphia Jazz Project regarding the Sun Raw mixtape Mr. Owens mentioned, so check back for updates. Second, Elizabeth Owens told me during her first email to me that it was likely she and her husband could connect me with other Baha'i musicians, so look for interviews of more Baha'is in future episodes. And speaking of episodes, it's time to close this episode of Song Spirituality and Stuff. Once again, I'm your host, Sean Roney of Sacred and Secular. Thanks again to those whose financial contributions helped make this episode possible. If you want to be a supporting patron of this podcast series, click on the Support the Show button. That's the coin icon with a heart in the middle, located in the upper right-hand corner of the series or episode page at buzzsprout.com. Speaking of which, thanks also to Buzzsprout for serving as the online host for this podcast. And finally, thank you for listening. Check back near the end of next month when the next episode of Song Spirituality and Stuff goes live. Until then, blessings to you all. Song Spirituality and Stuff is produced by Momut Music and Momut Multimedia, both imprints of Mutt Media LLC, a Missouri-based social enterprise. It is directed, edited, and engineered by Sean Roney. Unless otherwise noted, the music for songs, spirituality, and stuff is composed by Sean Roney and performed by Sacred and Secular. The copyright for this podcast is owned by Momut Music and Momut Multimedia. Any use of this podcast without the expressed written consent of MoMUT Music and MoMUT Multimedia is prohibited.